Chapter 6, Part 1 of How to Write Short Stories with Examples by Ring Lardner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kurt from Tucson, Arizona. Chapter 6, My Roomie, Part 1. My Roomie, a house party in a fashionable Third Avenue laundry, and the predicament of a hero who has posed as a famous elevator starter, form the background of this delightful tale of life in the Kiwanis Club. 6. My Roomie 1. No, I ain't signed for next year. But there won't be no trouble about that. The dough part of it is all fixed up. John and me talked it over and I'll sign as soon as they send me a contract. All I told him was that he'd have to let me pick my own roommate after this. And not sick no wild man onto me. You know I didn't hit much the last two months of the season. Some of the boys I noticed wrote some stuff about me getting old and losing my batting eye. That's all bunk. The reason I didn't hit was because I wasn't getting enough sleep. And the reason for that was Mr. Elliot. He wasn't with us after the last part of May, but I roomed with him long enough to get the insomnia. I was the only guy in the club game enough to stand for him. But I was sorry afterward that I'd done it, because it sure did put a crimp in my little old average. And do you know where he is now? I got a letter today, and I'll read it to you. No, I guess I better tell you something about him first. You fellers never got acquainted with him, and you ought to hear the dope to understand the letter. I'll make it as short as I can. He didn't play no league last year. He was with some semi-pros over in Michigan, and somebody writes John about him. So John sends Needham over to look at him. Tom stayed there Saturday and Sunday and seen him work twice. He was playing the outfield, but as luck would have it, they wasn't a fly ball hit in his direction in both games. A base hit was made out his way, and he booted it, and that's the only report Tom could get on his feeling. But he wallops two over the wall in one day, and they catch two line drives off him. The next day he gets four blows, and two of them is triples. So Tom comes back and tells John the guy is a whale of a hitter and fast as cob, but he don't know nothing about his fielding. Then John signs him to a contract, 1200 or something like that. We'd been in Tampa a week before he showed up. Then he comes to the hotel and just sits round all day without telling nobody who he was. Finally, the bellhops was going to chase him out, and he says he's one of the ball players. Then the clerk gets John to go over and talk to him. He tells John his name and says he hasn't had nothing to eat for three days because he was broke. John told me afterward that he drew about 300 in advance last winter sometime. 
Well, they took him in the dining room, and they tell me he inhaled about four meals at once. That night they roomed him with Hine. Next morning, Hine and me walks out to the grounds together, and Hine tells me about him. He says, Don't never call me a bug again. They got me rooming with the champion of the world. Who is he? I says. I don't know, and I don't want to know, says Hine. But if they stick him in there with me again, I'll jump to the Federals. To start with, he ain't got no baggage. I asked him where his trunk was, and he says he didn't have none. Then I asked him if he didn't have no suitcase, and he says, No, what do you care? I was going to lend him some pajamas, but he put on the shirt of the uniform John give him last night and slept in that. He was asleep when I got up this morning. I seen his collar laying on the dresser, and it looked like he had wore it in Pittsburgh every day for a year. So I throwed it out the window, and he comes down to breakfast with no collar. I asked him what size collar he wore, and he says he didn't want none, because he wasn't going out nowheres. After breakfast, he beat it up to the room again and put on his uniform. When I got up there, he was looking in the glass at himself, and he'd done it all the time I was dressing. When we got out to the park, I took my first look at him. Pretty good-looking guy, too, in his uni. Big shoulders and well put together. Built something like Hine himself. He was talking to John when I come up. What position do you play? John was asking him. I play anywhere, says Elliot. You're the kind I'm looking for, says John. Then he says, you was an outfielder up there in Michigan, wasn't you? I don't care where I play, says Elliot. John sends him to the outfield and forgets all about him for a while. Pretty soon Miller comes in and says, I ain't going to shag for no bush outfielder. John asked him what was the matter. And Miller tells him that Elliot ain't doing nothing but just standing out there. That he ain't making no attempt to catch the fungos and that he won't even chase them. Then John starts watching him, and it was just like Miller said. Larry hit one pretty near in his lap, and he stepped out of the way. John calls him in and asks him, Why don't you go after them fly balls? Because I don't want them, says Elliot. John gets sarcastic and says, What do you want? Of course we'll see that you get anything you want. Give me a ticket back home, says Elliot. Don't you want to stick with the club, says John? And the busher tells him, no, he certainly did not. Then John tells him he'll have to pay his own fare home, and Elliot don't get sore at all. He just says, well, I'll have to stick then, because I'm broke. We was having batting practice, and John tells him to go up and hit a few. And you ought to have seen him bust them. Lavender was in there working, and he'd been pitching a little all winter, so he was in pretty good shape. He lobbed one up to Elliot, and he hit it way up in some trees outside the fence. About a mile, I guess. And John tells Jimmy to put something on the ball. Jim comes through with one of his fast ones, and the kid slams it again the right field wall on a line. Give him your spitter, yells John. And Jim handed him one. 
he pulled it over first base so fast that Bert, who was standing down there, couldn't hardly duck in time. If it had hit him, it had killed him. Well, he kept on hitting everything Jim gave him. And Jim had something, too. Finally, John gets Pierce warmed up and sends him out to pitch, telling him to hand Elliot a flock of curveballs. He wanted to see if left-handers was going to bother him. But he slammed him right along, and I don't believe he hit more than two the whole morning that wouldn't have been base hits in a game. They send him out to the outfield again in the afternoon, and after a lot of coaxing, Leach got him to go after fly balls. But that's all he did do. Just go after him. One hit him on the bean, another on the shoulder. He run back after the short ones and way in after the ones that went over his head. He catched just one, a line drive that he couldn't get out of the way of, and then he acted like it hurt his hands. I came back to the hotel with John. He asked me what I thought of Elliot. Well, I says, he'd be the greatest ball player in the world if he could just play ball. He sure can bust him. John says he was afraid he couldn't never make an outfielder out of him. He says, I'll try him on the infield tomorrow. They must be someplace he can play. I never seen a left-handed hitter that looks so good again left-handed pitching, and he's got a great arm, but he acts like he'd never seen a fly ball. Well, he was just as bad on the infield. They put him at short, and he was like a sieve. You could have drove a hearse between him and second base without him getting near it. He'd stoop over for a ground ball about the time it was bouncing up again the fence. And when he tried to cover the bag on a peg, he'd trip over it. They tried him at first base, and sometimes he'd run way over in the coacher's box, and sometimes out in right field looking for the bag. Once Hind shot one across at him on a line, and he never touched it with his hands. It went bam right in the pit of his stomach. And the lunch he'd ate didn't do him no good. Finally, John just give up and says he'd have to keep him on the bench and let him earn his pay by busting him a couple of times a week or so. We all agreed with John that this bird would be a whale of a pinch hitter. And we was right, too. He was hitting way over 500 when the blow-off come, along about the last of May. 2. Before the training trip was over, Elliot had roomed with pretty near everybody in the club. Hein raised an awful holler after the second night down there, and John put the bug in with Needham. Tom stood him for three nights. Then he doubled up with Archer and Schulte and Miller and Leach and Sayer and the whole bunch in turn averaging about two nights with each one before they put up a kick. Then John tried him with some of the youngsters, but they wouldn't stand for him no more than the others. They all said he was crazy, and they was afraid he'd get violent some night and stick a knife in him. He always insisted on having the water run in the bathtub all night, because he said it reminded him of the sound of the dam near his home. The fellers might get up four or five times a night and shut off the faucet, but he'd get right up after him and turn it on again. Carter, a big bush pitcher from Georgia, started a fight with him about it one night, 
and Elliot pretty near killed him. So the rest of the bunch, when they saw Carter's map next morning, didn't have the nerve to do nothing when it come their turn. Another of his habits was the thing that scared him, though. He'd brought a razor with him. In his pocket, I guess, and he used to do his shaving in the middle of the night. Instead of doing it in the bathroom, he'd lather his face and then come out and stand in front of the looking glass on the dresser. Of course he'd have all the lights turned on, and that was bad enough when a feller wanted to sleep. But the worst of it was that he'd stop shaving every little while and turn round and stare at the guy who was making a failure or trying to sleep. Then he'd wave his razor round in the air and laugh and begin shaving again. You can imagine how comfortable his roomies felt. John had bought him a suitcase and some clothes and things and charged them up to him. He drew so much dough in advance that he didn't have nothing coming till about June. He never thanked John, and he'd wear one shirt and one collar till someone throwed him away. Well, we finally gets to Indianapolis, and we was going from there to Cincy to open. The last day in Indianapolis, John come and asked me how I'd like to change roomies. I says I was perfectly satisfied with Larry. Then John says, I wished you'd try Elliot. The other boys all kicks on him, but he seems to hang round you a lot, and I believe you could get along all right. Why don't you room him alone, I asked. The boss of the hotels won't stand for us rooming alone, says John. You go ahead and try it and see how you make out. If he's too much for you, let me know. But he likes you, and I think he'll be different with a guy who can talk to him like you can. So I says I'd tackle it, because I didn't want to throw John down. When we got to Cincy, they stuck Elliot and me in one room, and we was together till he quit us. 3. I went to the room early that night, because we was going to open next day, and I wanted to feel like something. First thing I'd done when I got undressed was turn on both faucets in the bathtub. They was making an awful racket when Elliot finally come in about midnight. I was laying awake and I opened right up on him. I says, Don't shut off that water because I like to hear it run. Then I turned over and pretended to be asleep. The bug got his clothes off and then what did he do but go in the bathroom and shut off the water. Then he come back in the room and says, I guess no one's going to tell me what to do in here. But I kept right on pretending to sleep and didn't pay no attention. When he'd got into his bed, I jumped out of mine and turned on all the lights and begun stropping my razor. He says, what's coming off? Some of my whiskers, I says. I always shave along about this time. No, you don't, he says. I was in your room one morning down in Louisville, and I seen you shaving then. Well, I says, the boys tell me you shave in the middle of the night, and I thought if I'd done all the things you do, maybe I'd get so's I could hit like you. You must be superstitious, he says, and I told him I was. I'm a good hitter, he says, and I'd be a good hitter if I never shaved at all. That don't make no difference. Yes, it does, I says. You probably hit good because you shave at night. You'd be a better fielder if you shaved in the morning. You see, 
I was trying to be just as crazy as him, though that wasn't hardly possible. If that's right, says he, I'll do my shaving in the morning, because I seen in the papers where the boy says that if I could play the outfield like I can hit, I'd be as good as Cobb. They tell me Cobb gets 20000 a year. No, I says, he don't get that much, but he gets about ten times as much as you do. Well, he says, I'm going to be as good as him, because I need the money. What do you want with money, I says. He just laughed and didn't say nothing. But from that time on, the water didn't run in the bathtub nights, and he done his shaving after breakfast. I didn't notice, though, that he looked any better in fielding practice. 4. It rained one day in Cincy, and they trimmed us two out of the other three. But it wasn't Elliot's fault. They had Larry beat four to one in the ninth inning of the first game. Archer gets on with two out, and John sends my roomie up to hit, though Benton, a left-hander, is working for them. The first thing Benton serves up there, Elliot cracks it a mile over Hobby's head. It would have been good for three easy, only Archer playing safe, of course, pulls up at third base. Tommy couldn't do nothing, and we was licked. The next day, he hits one out of the park off Indian, but we was way behind, and there was nobody on at the time. We copped the last one without using no pinch hitters. I didn't have no trouble with him nights during the whole series. He come to bed pretty late while we was there, and I told him he'd better not let John catch him at it. What would he do, he says. Fine you fifty, I says. He can't find me a dime, he says, because I ain't got it. Then I told him he'd be fined all he had coming if he didn't get in the hotel before midnight. But he just laughed and says he didn't think John had a kick coming so long as he kept busting the ball. Some day you'll go up there and you won't bust it, I says. That'll be an accident, he says. That stopped me and I didn't say nothing. What could you say to a guy who hated himself like that? The accident happened in St. Louis the first day. We needed two runs in the eighth, and Sayer and Brid was on with two out. John tells Elliot to go up in Pierce's place. The bug goes up and Griner gives him two bad balls way outside. I thought they was going to walk him. And it looked like good judgment, because they'd heard what he'd done in Cincy. But no. Griner comes back with a fast one right over, and Elliot pulls it down the right foul line, about two foot foul. He hit it so hard you'd have thought they'd sure walk him then. But Griner gives him another fast one. He slammed it again just as hard, but foul. Then Griner gives him one way outside, and it's two and three. John says on the bench. If they don't walk him now, he'll bust that fence down. I thought the same, and I was sure Griner wouldn't give him nothing to hit. But he come with a curve, and Wrigler calls Elliot out. From where we sat, the last one looked low, and I thought Elliot would make a kick. He come back to the bench smiling. John starts for his position, but stopped and asked the bug what was the matter with that one. 
any busher I ever knowed would have said, It was too low, or it was outside, or it was inside. Elliot says, Nothing at all. It was right over the middle. Why didn't you bust it then, says John. I was afraid I'd kill somebody, says Elliot, and laugh like a big boob. John was pretty near choking. What are you laughing at, he says. I was thinking of a nickel show I seen in Cincinnati, says the bug. Well, says John, so mad he couldn't hardly see, that show and that laugh'll cost you fifty. We got beat, and I wouldn't have blamed John if he'd find him his whole season's pay. Up in the room that night I told him he'd better cut out that laughing stuff when we was getting trimmed, or he would never have no payday. Then he got confidential. Payday wouldn't do me no good, he says. When I'm all squared up with the club and begin to have a payday, I'll only get a hundred bucks at a time, and I'll owe that to some of you fellers. I wish we could win the pennant and get in on that World Series dough. Then I'd get a bunch at once. What would you do with a bunch of dough, I asked him. Don't tell nobody, sport, he says. But if I ever get five hundred at once, I'm going to get married. Oh, I says, and who's the lucky girl? She's a girl up in Muskegon, says Elliot, and you're right when you call her lucky. You don't like yourself much, do you, I says. I got reason to like myself, says he. You'd like yourself, too, if you could hit em like me. Well, I says, you didn't show me no hitting today. I couldn't hit because I was laughing too hard, says Elliot. What was it you was laughing at, I says. I was laughing at that pitcher, he says. He thought he had something, and he didn't have nothing. He had enough to whiff you with, I says. He didn't have nothing, says he again. I was afraid if I busted one off him, they'd can him, and then I couldn't never hit again him no more. Naturally, I didn't have no come back to that. I just sort of gasped and got ready to go to sleep, but he wasn't through. I wished you could see this bird, he says. What bird, I says. This dame that's nuts about me, he says. Good looker, I asked. No, he says, she ain't no bear for looks. They ain't nothing about her for a guy to rave over till you hear her sing. She sure can holler some. What kind of voice has she got, I asked. A bear, says he. No, I says, I mean, is she a baritone or an air? I don't know, he says, but she's got the loudest voice I ever hear on a woman. She's pretty near got me beat. Can you sing, I says. And I was sorry right afterward that I asked him that question. I guess it must have been bad enough to have the water running night after night and to have him waving that razor round. But that couldn't have been nothing to his singing. Just as soon as I'd pulled that boner, he says, Listen to me, and starts in on Silver Threads Among the Gold. Mind you, it was after midnight and there was guests all round us trying to sleep. They used to be noise enough in our club when we had Hoffman and Sheckard and Richie harmonizing. 
but this bug's voice was louder and all there and combined. We once had a pitcher named Martin Walsh, brother of Big Ed's, and I thought he could drown out the subway. But this guy made a boiler factory sound like Dummy Taylor. If the whole hotel wasn't awake when he'd howled the first line, it's a pipe they was when he cut loose, which he done when he come to always young and fair to me. Them words could have been heard easy in East St. Louis. He didn't get no encore from me, but he goes right through it again, or starts to. I knowed something was going to happen before he finished, and something did. The night clerk and the house detective come banging at the door. I let him in, and they had plenty to say. If we made another sound, the whole club would be canned out of the hotel. I tried to salve him, and I says, he won't sing no more. But Elliot swelled up like a poisoned pup. Won't I, he says, I'll sing all I want to. You won't sing in here, says the clerk. They ain't room for my voice in here anyways, he says. I'll go outdoors and sing. And he puts his clothes on and ducks out. I didn't make no attempt to stop him. I heard him bellowing silver threads down the corridor and down the stairs with the clerk and the dick chasing him all the way and telling him to shut up. Well, the guests make a holler the next morning, and the hotel people tells Charlie Williams that he'll either have to let Elliot stay somewhere else, or the whole club will have to move. Charlie tells John, and John was thinking of settling the question by releasing Elliot. I guess he'd about made up his mind to do it. But that afternoon they had us three to one in the ninth, and we got the bases full with two down at Larry's turn to hit. Elliot had been sitting on the bench saying nothing. Do you think you can hit one today? says John. I can hit one any day, says Elliot. Go up and hit that left-hander then, says John, and remember there's nothing to laugh at. Sally was working, and working good, but that didn't bother the bug. He cut into one, and it went between oaks and witted like a shot. He came into third standing up, and we was a run to the good. Sally was so sore he kind of forgot himself and took pretty near his full wind-up pitching to Tommy. And what did Elliot do but steal home and get away with it clean? Well, you couldn't can him after that, could you? Charlie gets him a room somewheres, and I was relieved of his company that night. The next evening we beat it for shy to play about two weeks at home. He didn't tell nobody where he roomed there, and I didn't see nothing of him except out to the park. I asked him what he did with himself nights, and he says, Same as I do on the road. Borrow some dough someplace and go to the nickel shows. You must be stuck on him, I says. Yes, he says, I like the ones where they kill people because I want to learn how to do it. I may have that job someday. Don't pick on me, I says. Oh, says the bug, you never can tell who I'll pick on. It seemed as if he just couldn't learn nothing about fielding, and finally John told him to keep out of the practice. A ball might hit him in the temple and croak him, says John. 
but he busted up a couple of games for us at home, beating Pittsburgh once and Cincy once. End of chapter 6. My Roomie, part 1.